Welcome to the Payments Podium Podcast, hosted by the payments professor himself, Kevin Olson. This podcast discusses the past, present, and the possibilities of the payments industry. Here's the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Payments Podium. I'm Kevin Olson, the payments professor, and I got to tell you, we have a great subject to be able to discuss today. Have any of you ever thought about, well, what's it like to have the financial industry touch so many areas of life? In fact, one of those areas of life that it touches or that we need to be watching out for is human trafficking. That's right. I said human trafficking. And today, well, in this episode, we've got Sarah Crow. Sarah is with the Polaris Project. You can find out more about the Polaris Project by going to polarisproject.org. They are a nonprofit and they're focusing on working on human trafficking. Well, her specific role is to be able to disrupt human trafficking by working with the financial services industry. I already know that this is going to be an exciting conversation because working in, you know, electronic payments, there are some issues that we deal with that are like, wow, big deal. But there are some issues that we get to deal with like this one that they really are a big deal and they can make a difference in somebody's life without a doubt. So I'd like to welcome Sarah Crow. Sarah, how are you doing today? You know, I'm doing pretty well. Thanks so much for having me, Kevin. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I got to say, I am very eager and interested to learn a little bit more. But one of the things we do on the Payments Podium is we start off with the past, we get to the present, and we talk about the possibilities in the future. So to get into the past, one of the things I got to ask right away is, how did you get into this job? I mean, what, what led you to where you're working with financial services and human trafficking? It doesn't sound like that's something a five-year-old goes, that's what I'm going to do when I grow up. It, you know, it's like, how did you, that happen? It's definitely a very uh, niche area of work and not one I ever anticipated ending up in, I will be honest. Um, I actually started out working at Polaris on our uh, the U.S. National Human Trafficking Hotline that we operate. So that's a 24-hour hotline for uh, victims and survivors of trafficking to call in. Um, maybe they need help leaving their trafficker, they need to get connected to law enforcement, they need shelter in their area, um, you name it, uh, we, we deal with it. Um, and so started out there um, almost 10 years ago now. Um, and over time, you know, working in a nonprofit, I think you're, you're always wearing a lot of different hats. So my position has definitely evolved and changed. Um, for a few years, I led our data analysis program. So really taking information and insights we were learning through that hotline and um, trying to analyze them and get them out to different stakeholders. Um, during that time is when I think I realized the significance of the financial services industry um, on this issue in particular and um, also realized kind of the enthusiasm from the industry in, in taking it on and, and collaborating. So um, have now transitioned to focus really exclusively on the financial services industry and, and making sure they, they get the information they need um, to do kind of their part of this. All right, you said you've been doing this now for 10 years. And I, I gotta say, I, I believe human trafficking is probably one of those things, if we look at historically, it's always been around. But it's also something that I know from doing a lot of travel that in the last three to four years, it started popping up more and more as far as advertisements for it. Uh, you go through the Atlanta airport, the Chicago airport, something like that, you're gonna see a lot of things. I, I live in Tampa, and in my previous job, I, working in the banking industry, started to find out that Tampa actually was one of the key spots in the country 
for human trafficking. And it's one of those things I was like, no, it can't be. You know, I live here. How's this happened? So what has caused human trafficking to get the awareness, the awareness it definitely deserves to be able to prevent it in the past few years? Is there anything you could really pinpoint or say it was because of this, or it was because of this, or maybe we just evolved as a society finally? Well, we're coming up on the 20-year anniversary of uh, the Trafficking Victim Protections Act passing in the United States, which actually made um, human trafficking a crime at the federal level. Um, chattel slavery, you know, what was abolished during um, the 19th century was illegal, but these other forms of slaver slavery and forced work um, were still legal until that um, legislation passed. So that has something to do with it. In terms of the last few years, I mean, I feel the same way. Having started 10 years ago, um, the level of awareness of the, the community and just general population is um, so different than it was 10 years ago. And trying to identify what that has been, um, I think is a little tricky. I don't know that I can pinpoint one thing. I mean, I think it's a little bit of a snowball effect. It is an issue that when you start to learn about it, it's very hard to forget <laughs> about it or say, you know, oh, well, that's interesting, but moving on. Um, people do tend to, when they learn about it, become very, um, very dedicated to working on the issue or, or, or trying to do their part. And so I think um, probably as some key people became involved and aware um, and these different initiatives started, I think it's probably had this kind of snowball effect since then. So tough question. <laughs> Tough question. Well, great answer. And I, I, I got to say, you said people become very dedicated to this. So you've also, you've done it for 10 years. You, you said you started off on, you know, taking the hotline calls, which I can only imagine what those calls would have been like. But that led into the dead analysis. And you started seeing the significance of the financial industry. Well, what was it? Like, what were the things you started to notice that, the, hey, the realization came up, you know, we need to look more into here. I mean, what were those things? What were those markers? What was happening that led you to, let's work now with the financial industry? Can you elaborate on that a little bit more for us? Yeah, so I think the kind of anti-trafficking movement um, started out being, for good reason, very reactionary. A lot of the work that was done was about after trafficking has started occurring, um, you know, how do you make sure victims of trafficking get services and get help. Um, so you start thinking about shelter and counseling, that sort of thing. I think over time, there has increasingly been conversations within Polaris and the movement more broadly to think about how can we get in front of this a little bit? Um, how can we prevent trafficking from happening? And, and when you do that, you need to start thinking about what are the motivations of traffickers to begin with. Um, human trafficking is a financial crime. Uh, what makes it human trafficking, the definition of it is that it is this kind of commercial enterprise. That's what makes it different from, you know, domestic violence or sexual assault or other related issues. Um, there is a financial motivation. So thinking about the industry that, you know, the financial services industry that has um, so much insight and um, expertise in that space and um, kind of that vantage point. Um, it starts, you start to think, you know, this is a community we need to engage more. 
And then I would say that the second piece of it um, is that traditionally human trafficking has been really, really hard to prosecute um, for a number of reasons. But one of them is that human trafficking cases tend to rely very heavily on victims participating in the trial, um, which makes sense. That's part of kind of due process in the United States, um, your right to face your accuser. But um, for people who have been victims of trafficking and have experienced a tremendous amount of abuse and threats, um, the prospect of, of participating in, in that um, environment is, is really overwhelming. And for a lot of people, they're, they're maybe not willing or able to do it. So the other piece of it is to try and think about, okay, you know, we can't always put the pressure on the victims to participate. Um, but there's got to be other ways to bring accountability to these people that are that are exploiting others. Um, and so that's where I think the financial crimes angle becomes really significant. You know, it's kind of like the Al Capone approach. Um, they ended up Al getting Capone Al Capone approach, I like that. <laughs> on tax evasion. Um, you know, God knows how many other crimes he had committed over the years, but tax evasion, they, they could prove that case. And, um, you know, with human trafficking, you might not always be able to get a human trafficking conviction, um, but that financial evidence, there's a, you know, there's money laundering, there's often tax evasion, there's often other financial crimes that start coming into the picture. And so maybe you can get, you know, and, and those hold pretty serious penalties as well. So maybe you can, you can pursue a prosecution on, on some of those other crimes instead. Um, and that kind of takes a little bit of that pressure and burden off of that victim from having to participate. Yeah, I love that you said the Al Capone approach because mm -hmm. it was something if you studied that to know that, that they were doing all they could to find a way to be able to get the guy. I mean, everybody knew he was guilty, guilty of many, many, many different things, but that was the way they finally found to get him. So to hear that you're taking the aspect of the financial industry and using that to your benefit, that is pretty phenomenal too. And you also said the definition of it is it's, it's a commercial enterprise. And what, what's interesting about that is when it comes to, you know, let's switch to what's happening today, what you're doing, because you, you've given us a lot on how we got to here. And if we look at what's presently happening and you talk about them being a commercial enterprise, I know when I talk to people about cyber crimes, that there are other countries where people go to work, they go to an office, they even wear suits and ties and drive nice cars to go to an office to commit cyber crimes, to be able to steal our money, to do those illegal activities. Is it anywhere near like that in the human trafficking too, to where these are organized people, to where they're, you know, there's, for lack of a better word, there's an actual payroll because people do get paid for it, that, you know, they've got other things that they've got to support. They got to pay electricity, you know, feeding and clothing these people to at least some extent. So human trafficking in, in the U.S. Has, has two categories. There's sex trafficking, which is when someone's made to engage in prostitution or commercial sex against their will. And it's anyone who is a minor um, that's, that's participating in, in essentially prostitution would also be considered a victim of human trafficking. That everyone participating in that know, you know, they they see themselves as um, they know it's a criminal enterprise and are um, acting accordingly. So it's not necessarily so out in the open. You know, there are a few places in the United States that have, um, you know, in certain counties in Nevada that have um, legalized uh, brothels that you know 
maybe I guess it's it's a little bit more of a traditional business, but otherwise it's definitely a very underground uh, crime. On the labor trafficking side, though, it's completely different because we're talking about uh, labor trafficking is is when people are made to work against their will uh, through force, fraud, or coercion. And where that actually ends up showing up is a lot of businesses that seem from the outside to be completely normal, legitimate businesses. So um, the agricultural industry has very high rates of labor trafficking, landscaping, uh, hospitality industry, uh, like house cleaning and cleaning services, which is particularly relevant right now. In those situations, a lot of times, the people who are engaging in trafficking, you know, I don't know for sure, having never <laughs> done it myself, but um, are thinking of it as more as like, a, almost like a management style. Like this is the, you know, uh, they're operating under um, tight profit margins. How can they save some money? Oh, well, it would be a lot easier if we just didn't pay our employees or we withheld their wages until the end of the season, for instance. Because a lot of the people who end up in labor trafficking situations are migrant guest workers. So um, the, the employers will say, well, I don't want them to quit because they don't like their job. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll tell them that I'll only pay them at the end of the season. And that will mean that no matter how much they hate the job, no matter how bad it is, they can't leave because I have money, uh, their money, or you know, they're in debt to me for their food or housing, that sort of thing. So in that way, you know, I think those people are going to work. They are processing payroll, um, what that looks like de maybe depends on the industry, um, mm -hmm. but it is much more a, a, a real business enterprise. I, you know, I, I'm getting enlightened a little bit here because I immediately think of just the sex trafficking. That, that's the one that, you know, uh, I saw in Liam Neeson's Taken. So, it, you know, it's the one that comes to mind the most. It, it's the one that, you know, yeah, it's, it's on the TV shows or in the novels. I never really thought about the labor trafficking side of it as much, though. And that, uh, you know, like when you said the landscaping and, and the migrant workers and the hospitality, suddenly, boom, it started, that starts flashing off and the realization's coming there. Well, I'd ask then, too, how, I mean, what are you looking for? What, what do you actually, or what could we really tell banks and credit unions? Because that's what a lot of our listeners are. They're banks, they're credit unions that are out there. They're working in the operations department. They work in the loan department. Some of them are tellers. They're in, you know, multiple departments within the organization. Some people work for fintech companies that are building software. But what are the things that, you know, we could tell them, hey, this is the type of stuff to be on the lookout for? Okay, so I'll start with labor trafficking. Um, in terms of transaction monitoring, it can be really tricky. Um, but uh, some things that, that I suggest to banks or, or others to kind of think about, especially in onboarding clients, is trying to ask some um, more questions about their labor practices. You know, do you have, you know, kind of basic HR policies in place that say things like, um, you know, you um, have a right to report harassment to, um, you know, a safe entity without um, being being fired. Um, do you have a policy that says, um, you know, 
we, when we recruit workers, we, we, we do not allow them to, we prohibit them from paying any sort of fees in order to obtain their job, because that's often how this kind of debt bondage situation occurs. Um, do you, can you demonstrate that you process payroll regularly? I think that's Mm -hmm. a really big one. Like, do you pay people every two weeks or like kind of on a, a more normal schedule? Um, can you actually demonstrate that you're actually paying your employees and that you're paying them that are, you know, roughly equivalent to maybe other businesses, um, within that same industry? Um, so it can be hard. I think, you know, if you're looking at the transactions to figure out, because a, a lot of times on the labor tracking side of things, it's almost like the absence of something like this company never pays workers comp insurance or they never, um, they don't seem to be processing payroll normally. Um, you know, a lot of banks will say, well, I don't know that they don't have another account with another financial institution. I don't have insight into that. So that absence of something is, is really tricky. Um, but I think, you know, at least when you're at the account opening stage to try and ask some of those questions and like, some of those questions shouldn't be hard to answer or to, sh- to prove that, you know, you've, you've, you've done this in the past. Um, we're not necessarily asking for um, the world's most amazing uh, work environment. We're kind of asking these, these businesses to adhere to what I think are generally accepted normal uh, human resources practices in, in most other jobs. Um, you know, having policies in place and, and paying people on time and, um, you know, not threatening your employees, that sort of thing. All right. You, I have to tell you how much you just educated me. And I know some of the listeners too, I've been working in this industry for a couple of decades. I, for years, even taught classes on onboarding. Here's onboarding practices. Here's the things you should be looking at. Here's the things you consider. Here's the things you put in your agreement. And never, never did I even say, can you prove you're paying your payroll? Never did I actually say, does that payroll look comparable to what it should be for other businesses like businesses in that area or in that industry? And for sure, never did I say, hey, do you pay workman's comp insurance and could you possibly provide proof of it? So you've definitely already educated me, but I can see where that would be helpful to be able to do it. Um, One of the things that too I've told people is, you know, we work in an environment, especially right now with COVID, you know, stay six feet away, uh, you know, stay home. But I've always told them one of the best things you can ever do is part of your onboarding process is go visit that location. Go visit that location. You know, if they're selling widgets, make sure they have a stock of widgets to actually be sold type deal is what I would tell them. If they give you an address, make sure it's at that actual address. Because I had a story once where I told somebody to go do that and I'm on site with them and we're in New Mexico, Albuquerque, New Mexico. And we go to the address and it's a vacant lot. Granted, it turned out we had the address wrong. We were on like Northeast when we should have been on Northwest on on a road. But still, you know, the look on that banker's face when we pulled up to that empty lot, she was like, this is supposed to be a multi-million dollar company. But, you know, doing the visit exploited a lot of that. Now, I bring that up, though, because, you know, you're telling us a lot on the financial side. I would ask if somebody does do the visit, is there anything key to look out for there? If you go on site to one of these businesses, what would be like, say, the top three things? Hey, be on the lookout for this while you're there, while you're doing that on-site inspection, that on-site visit. 
Yeah, so it's, it's going to depend a little bit on the industry, but I would say one of the major things to look for, especially if you're going to a small business that's like maybe a restaurant or a nail salon, is any sort of evidence that employees are sleeping on site, like living on site. Um, so, you know, maybe there's like mattresses in the back or there's um, people are doing laundry there. You know, it's not really normal for someone who's, working and, and, and doing manicures to live at the business that they do that at. Now on the, you know, within farms or agriculture, that is more standardized is for the, um, you know, the employer to provide housing to their workers. Um, so that becomes a little bit more complicated, but for a lot of businesses, that's just completely abnormal to see something like that. Um, so that's the first thing that comes to mind. I would, um, you know, probably also just consider um, the kind of general safety and like access to hygiene and, and sanitation type services of the building. I mean, this again is not anything uh, revolutionary or a huge burden to place on um, a business to make sure that workers have access to clean water and um, are able to go to the bathroom and, and are given, you know, safety equipment that's appropriate um, to, the, to the business that they're doing. I would also, you know, try and ask about um, whether that safety equipment is paid for or if the employees have to purchase it. Because another issue that will happen is you may be working in an industry that's really um, difficult, um, it, a lot of safety issues. Um, but the employer won't provide that kind of safety equipment. They say, okay, well, I will deduct money from your paycheck for the safety equipment. So it's almost like you're renting it from the employer. And then it will, it will sometimes get to the point where like there are so many deductions that the employees are actually almost like in debt to the employer for these kind of basic supplies. Um, and so again, that's that kind of like debt bondage scenario um, to be wary of. Wow, never even would have thought of that one. This is just some fascinating stuff. I mean, it really is, a lot of it is blowing my mind. I, okay, I love how you said you got into the data analytics, how you started looking for certain things, what you can do on the onboarding process. Uh, I know you said transaction monitoring can be difficult, but is there any other thing that right now on the financial side that could be done besides the onboarding, or is there any more in the tra transaction monitoring to look for? And is it maybe cross-border payments uh, or payments from certain countries, anything like that that raise additional flags or keywords that might be in the type of payment? Yeah, so on the sex trafficking side, there's a huge amount of, of um, information about transaction monitoring. On the labor trafficking side, the only thing that I've really seen is some of the money remittance services looking for evidence um, of people kind of maybe paying back a debt to um, an employer or a recruiter where, you know, everyone's going in, um, cashing a paycheck at a retail location and then sending money back to the same kind of unrelated individual. So that's maybe evidence of paying off a debt of everyone on the same work site seems to have a debt to the same person. Um, on the sex trafficking side, it's, uh, it's a completely different situation um, because of I would say one crucial factor, which actually is, is something I've looked into quite extensively, is um, 
the use of um, certain websites to advertise for prostitution or commercial sex services. So those transactions with those sites um, can be identified through transaction monitoring. Um, that was a huge factor if you're familiar with the Backpage.com case. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a site that at one point in time probably had about 80% of the ads um, for prostitution services in the United States. Um, and for a long time accepted credit card payments on the site. Um, then Visa, uh, MasterCard, and um, American Express all blocked transactions with the site. So the site then had to evolve and they started accepting Bitcoin, but they also did a lot of transaction laundering um, work um, to through a variety of very complex processes. Um, and um, so those transactions could still be identified, but they were more difficult to identify. Um, as of 2018, the Department of Justice seized Backpage.com. And so um, since then, there's you know, numerous other sites that kind of exist in that space. Um, there's also been some legislation passed that makes operating one of those sites illegal. So the sites go to greater lengths to hide their transactions um, and make it more difficult for banks to detect. But there, there are ways um, to detect them, um, you know, really looking in on those um, billing descriptors, um, figuring out what they are, looking at, you know, certain uh, merchant category codes or merchant country codes often um, can be correlated with these transactions. Um, and then once you've done that, it's you know really looking at the accounts that have the most transactions with those sites because you're looking for accounts where you know, there are people that are maybe consensually independently engaging in prostitution. Mm -hmm. But if somebody is posting ads or, or paying huge amounts of money, I mean, we've heard of transactions that are like $10,000 in a month with one site for advertising they're probably advertising multiple individuals for prostitution. And then it's less likely it's going to be that that independent person consensually doing it. And more likely that there's this third party facilitator who's maybe exploiting these individuals. So once you get those accounts, um, you can start looking for, you know, some other patterns, um, very high, high levels of transportation and, and um, travel related costs. So, an unusual number of hotel stays, for instance, where this commercial sex tends to happen. Um, you know, uh, booking um, flights or other transportation um, for like multiple unrelated women, um, an unusual amount of, um, let's see, uh, prepaid activity, if, if you have any vantage point into that, because a lot of times, um, there will be use of, of prepaid cards to, to try to try and um, avoid detection. Um, you know, deposit uh, deposits that are very unusual in round dollar amounts um, that are maybe you know multiple ATMs in a night or multiple ATMs in a short period of time. Um, ride sharing after midnight is very common within with a lot of these cases. So you know, Uber charges after midnight. Um, a number of, of sort of different transactions there. And then there are some kind of 
actual established businesses that are engaging in sex trafficking. So um, kind of many of those what we call illicit massage businesses or those spas that claim to be a massage business but really are providing sexual services, they're functioning as a brothel, um, you know, they're also going to have a number of unusual patterns, particularly things like transactions outside of normal op operating hours for a, a massage therapy business, um, a number of other things, but those are some examples there. That's a lot of examples. I mean, I'm sitting here taking notes. I'm going through this in my head. I'm sure all the listeners are going to. Uh, uh, professor, are you going to write this all down for us? And, and you know, I'd like to. And what, what, the reason I bring that up is, do, do you have anything that banks and credit unions could actually maybe go download or that could be made available to listeners that list some of these things to be on the lookout for? Maybe a white paper of some sort? Because that is, you know, I know if I'm somebody onboarding or if I'm somebody working in operations, I would love to be able to go, okay, let's look for this. Let's know what these trends are. Let's know what to be on the lookout for. What, you know, let's add this to our onboarding process. Anything like that available? Or is there anywhere uh, you could tell people to go to get that type of information? Yeah, so um, we did put out a report a couple of years ago. Um, it's, if you go to our website, it's called the Intersections Report. And it does have a lot of information for the there's a chapter on the financial services industry. Um, I will say that that, you know, I wrote it a, a couple of years ago and I've definitely learned a tremendous amount since then. So it's maybe a good starting point. Um, in terms of other sources of information, one that was published um, recently uh, came from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, known as the OSCE. Um, they just put out a guide called Following the Money Compendium of Resources and Step-by-Step -step Guide to Financial in Investigations into Tracking in Human Beings. Um, the reason I raise this one is because one part of what they did is uh, Joseph Mari, who is a wonderful AML expert from uh, Scotiabank, actually went through, I think it was like 26 different sources of red flag like indicator lists from like 26 different sources um, and kind of combine them all and um, that list is included in the report so it's quite extensive um, it's not as specific to the United States but it definitely gives a very good um, overview for for people who are kind of getting started in this space Hey, could you maybe send me links to those? Because uh, I know a lot of people are listening and they're, they're going to be like, hey, how can I remember that? And, you know, professors <laughs> sure. make that available. So I'll make sure I put it in the Twitter. I'll make sure that it gets on our website when we make this live, too. And just, just to repeat, too, it was that intersections report, and that's available on polarisproject.org. Is that correct? Yes. And I can send you uh, links to both. Okay. Um, one more resource. Just wait, wait, what to be was the other one? Real quick, you said that uh, European organizations follow the money, a step-by-step -step guide to trafficking. Of yeah, so it's the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, um, and the report that just came out is following the money compendium of resources and step-by-step -step guide to financial investigations into trafficking in human beings. It's quite a mouthful. It came out in November of 2019, um, so I can send links to both. And then one more that has a much easier yeah, URL. Before we get to that one, I just want to say this, folks, if you're listening, I know a lot of times people are traveling. I'm going to tell you a little trick that I do when something like this happens during a podcast or a conversation. Send yourself a text 
ask a Siri or Alexa if they will, you know, look it up for you so it's there and available. Call your own cell phone and leave yourself a voice message. That way you don't forget. This is critical and important stuff you don't want to forget. All right, what's that other resource? Um, and then the third one would be to go to the fastinitiative.org. Um, this is the Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking uh, organization. They have put out a toolkit for financial institutions, um, and there are some tools about financial investigations and, and other information. They've also recently been um, working with the Association for Certified Anti-Money Laundering Specialists to put out um, more information. So uh, there's definitely been some efforts there to get information out. And that was FAST, F-A-S-T? Yes. The FAST yes. organization, they've got a toolkit for institutions investigations. Wow. Okay, this has been like a ton of great information. <laughs> uh, and we spent a lot of time in the present. So I, I just want to, we're getting to where we're going to wrap up here. Um, and everybody, you know, likes to hear from our guest, what does the future look like? What are the possibilities of where we could go? So I, I'd like you to think on that for a second. When it comes to the future of what the financial industry can do to stop the human trafficking in the sex and in the labor sides, is there, you know, besides getting these reports, besides incorporating this into their onboarding process, looking for these key words, helping to identify it, what does the future look like where they could be of more service to being able to stop these horrific crimes from happening? I mean, I think a crucial piece of this has been and will continue to be collaboration um, and financial institutions kind of willing to take the time to sit down with um, folks who are more experts on the human trafficking side to, to kind of co collectively come up with what are those indicators? What are those things that can be done? Um, because a lot of this information, you know, has been the result of many conversations with um, people in that space where I'm sharing information about what different human trafficking uh, situations look like, how networks operate, and those are, you know, being translated by the AML contacts into thinking, okay, what are, what is that going to look like from a transaction stand, uh, standpoint? Like, what is that going to look like in terms of a KYC check? Um, can we use that information? So um, that's been really essential. I think the other thing just to be mindful of is, I mean, this is true of maybe everything in the financial crime space, but um, human trafficking is incredibly dynamic and evolving all the time. And so it's not an area where you can get a list and you implement your list and you're done. Like it, it uh, in order to do this effectively, uh, we need to be continually evolving and innovating because human traffickers aren't stopping. You know, with the, the back page example, back page transactions got blocked. Back page, which is now, um, turned into a huge money laundering case um, at the federal level, um, took on all of these different kind of transaction laundering systems and they evolved. And so um, we need to be able to do that too and kind of keep pace with that. But I think that's again, where we need to be having those conversations so that information is being exchanged regularly and we can, we can try and keep up there. All right. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I, I know I got a lot out of this. Uh, that Al Capone method of being able to get them, the Al Capone approach, that was 
huge. And that's just something that's sticking with me. The being able to be on the lookout things like just workers comp insurance and being able to provide proof about that. That is like, wow, um, going on location, does it look like they live there? Are they allowed to even leave? You know, things I would have never thought of. But even better, those resources that you named, that they're available and that people could start using those resources. But that last thing you just said, I mean, I think that one's going to stick with me for the rest of the afternoon is you can't just implement a list and be done. You've got to actually work towards this and you've got to be able to evolve. That's what you ended with. So that's huge. And Sarah, I want to say thank you so much for being on the payments podium, but even more, just thank you for what you're doing because you're one of those people that I can hear the passion in your voice and listeners, you don't know, I can actually see Sarah and she is getting into these answers, you know, <laughs> making her think a little bit, but she's all like in responding. So I just want to honor you for a minute because what you're doing is huge work and it makes a difference in the world. And I'm glad that there are people like you out there doing what they're doing. The rest of you, you know, if you want to hear a certain subject, there's something out there that you would like to have on the payments podium, send me an email, kevin at paymentsprofessor.com. I'll do my best to go through the network of people I know in this industry. That's how I got a hold of Sarah to be able to find people that can talk to the topics that you want to hear. That's it for today. Class dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Payments Podium Podcast. Check back every Thursday for a conversation with the Payments Professor. This podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Olson and edited by Sam Sue Smith. See you on Thursday.